Part three, chapter two of Dawn of All by Robert U. Benson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. There was dead silence on the long staircase of the Vatican leading up to the Cardinal Secretary's rooms, as Monsignor toiled up within half an hour of his arrival at the stage outside the city. A car was in waiting for him there, had whirled him first to the old palace where he had stayed nine months ago with Father Jervis, and then, on finding that Cardinal Bellairs had been unexpectedly sent for to the Vatican, he had gone on there immediately, according to the instructions that had been left with the major-domo. He knew all now. Wireless messages had streamed in hour after hour during the flight across the Atlantic. At Naples, where the Valor had first touched land, the papers already mentioned full and exhaustive accounts of the outbreak, with the latest reports, and by the time that he reached Rome, he was as well informed of the real facts of the case as were any who were not in the inner circle of those who knew. The Swiss guard presented his fantastic halberd as he passed in panting after his climb. A man in scarlet livery took his hat and cloak. Another preceded him through the first anteroom, where an ecclesiastic received him. And with this priest he passed on through the second and third rooms up to the door of the inner chamber. The priest pushed the door open for him, and he went in alone. The door closed noiselessly behind him. The room was the same as that which he remembered, all gold and red damask, lighted from the roof, with a great brass inlaid writing-table at the farther end, and the broad settee against the right-hand wall. But it seemed to him in his apprehensiveness that the solemnity was greater, and the hushed silence even deeper. Two figures sat side by side on the settee, each in the scarlet ferriola of ceremony. One, Cardinal Bellairs, looked up at him and nodded, even smiling a little. The other stood up and bowed slightly, before extending his hand to be kissed. The second figure was a great personality, Italian by birth, an extraordinary linguist, a very largely made man, both stout and tall, with a head of thick and perfectly white hair. He had been a papabal at the last election, and, it was thought, was certain of the papacy some day, even though it was unusual that a secretary of state should succeed. He had a large, well-cut face, rather yellowish in color, and very bright, half-veiled black eyes. Monsignor kissed the ring without genuflecting, as the custom was in the Vatican, and sat down on the chair indicated. No one spoke for a moment. "'How much have you heard, Monsignor?' asked Cardinal Bellairs abruptly. I have heard that the socialists have seized Berlin and the emperor, that the city is fortified, that there have been two massacres, and that the emperor's life is threatened unless the powers grant all the terms asked within, within four days from now. Have you heard of the death of Prince Otione? No, your eminence. Prince Otione was executed last night, said the cardinal simply, he begged to go as the representative of the Holy Father to treat for terms. They said they were not there to treat, but to grant terms. And they say that they will do the same for every envoy who does not bring a message of complete submission. That will be known everywhere by midday. Again there was silence. The Cardinal Secretary glanced from one face to the other, as if hesitating. Monsignor made no attempt to speak. He knew that was not his business. Can you guess why I have sent for you, Monsignor? No, Your Eminence. I am leaving for Berlin myself tonight. 
the Holy Father kindly allows me to do so. I wish to leave some instructions about English affairs before I go. For a moment, the priest's mind was unable to take in all the significance of this. The cardinal's air was of one who announces that he is going into the country for a few days. There was not the faintest sign even of excitement in his manner or voice. Before the priest could speak, the cardinal went on. Your Eminence, I have told you what confidence I rest in Monsignor Masterman. He has all the affairs of the English Church in his hands, and I desire that, if possible, he should be appointed vicar capitular in the event of my death. The Secretary of State bowed. I am sure, he began. Your Eminence, cried the priest suddenly, it's impossible, it's impossible. The Englishman looked at him sharply. It is what I wish, he said. Monsignor collected himself with a violent effort. He could not, even afterwards, trace the exact process by which he had arrived so swiftly at his determination. He supposed it was partly the drama of the situation, the sense that big demands were in the air, partly nervous excitement, partly a certain distaste with life that was growing on him, but chiefly and foremost a passionate and devoted affection for his chief, which he had never till this instant suspected in himself. He only perceived, as clearly as in a vision, that this gallant old man must not be allowed to go alone, and that he, he who had criticized and rebelled against the brutality of the world, must go with him. Your eminence, he said, it is impossible, because I must come with you to Berlin. The cardinal smiled and lifted his hand, as if to an impetuous child. My dear fellow, Monsignor turned to the other. He felt cool and positive, as if a breeze had fanned away his excitement. You understand, your eminence, do you not? It is impossible that the cardinal should go alone. I am his secretary. I can arrange everything with, with the rector of the English college here, if there is no one else. That is right, is it not, your eminence? The Italian hesitated. Prince Ozione went alone, he began. Exactly, and there were no witnesses. That must not happen again. There was an obvious answer, but no one made it. Cardinal Belair stood up, lifting himself with his stick. It is very good of you, he said quietly. I understand why you make the offer, but it is impossible. Monsignor, will you talk with his eminence a little? There are one or two things he wishes to tell you. I have to see the Holy Father, but I will be with you again soon. The priest stood up, too. I must come with you to His Holiness, he said. I will abide by his decision. The other shook his head, again smiling almost indulgently. Monsignor turned swiftly to the Italian. Your Eminence, he said, will you get this favor for me? I must see the Holy Father after Cardinal Bellaris has seen him, since I may not go with him. The English Cardinal turned with a little abrupt movement and stood looking at him. There was silence. Well, come, he said. The contrast between these two great princes of the Church and their Lord and Master struck Monsignor very strongly. In spite of his excitement, as he followed his chief into the Pope's room and saw an almost startlingly commonplace man, 
of middle size, rise up from the table at which he was writing. He was a Frenchman, Monsignor knew, and not an exceptional Frenchman. There was nothing sensational or even impressive about his appearance, except his white dress and insignia, and even these, upon him, seemed somewhat rather tame and ordinary. His voice, when he spoke presently, was of an ordinary kind of pitch, and his speaking rather rapid. His eyes were a commonplace grey, his nose a little fleshy, and his mouth completely undistinguished. He was, in short, completely unlike the Pope of Fiction and Imagination. There was nothing of the pontiff about him in his manner. He might have been a clean-shaven businessman of average ability, who had chosen to dress himself up in a white cassock, and to sit in an enormous room, furnished in crimson damask and gold, with chandeliers, at a rather inconvenient writing-desk. Even at this dramatic moment, Monsignor found himself wondering how in the world this man had risen to the highest office on earth. He had been the son of a postmaster in Tours, the priest remembered. The Pope murmured an unintelligible greeting as the two, after kissing his ring, sat down beside the writing-table. "'So you have come to take your leave, your eminence,' he began. "'We should all be very grateful for your willingness to go.' God will reward you. Plainly it must be a cardinal this time, Holy Father, said the Englishman, smiling. We have still four days, and one of my nationality has affinity with the Germans, and yet is not one of them, as I remarked to your holiness last night. Besides, I am getting an old man. There was nothing whatever of the gallant Pelsier in his manner, whatever were the words. Monsignor perceived that, somehow or another, these persons stood in an attitude towards death that was beyond his comprehension altogether. They spoke of it lightly and genially. "'Eh, well,' said the Pope, "'it is decided so. You go to-night?' "'Yes, Holy Father, it is absolutely necessary for me to arrange my affairs first. I have charted a private floor. One of my own servants has volunteered to drive it.' but there is one more matter before I receive your holiness's instructions. This priest here, my secretary, Monsignor Masterman, wishes to come with me. I ask your holiness to forbid that. I wish him to be vicar capitular of my diocese, if possible, in the event of my death. The Pope glanced across at the priest. Why do you wish to go, Monsignor? Do you understand to what you are going? Holy Father, I understand everything. I wish to go because it is not right that the Cardinal should go alone. Let there be a witness this time. The rector of the English college here can receive all necessary instructions from his eminence and myself. And you, eminence? I do not wish him to go because there is no need why two should go, holiness. One can carry the message as well as two. There was silence for a moment. The Pope began to play with a pen that lay before him. Then Monsignor burst out again. Holy Father, I beg of you to let me go. I am afraid of death. That is one reason why I should go. I am crippled mentally. My memory left me a few months ago. It may leave me again, and this time helpless and useless. And it is possible that I may be of some service. Two are better than one. For a moment the Pope said nothing. He glanced up curiously as the priest had said that he was afraid of death. Then he had looked down again, his lips twitching slightly. 
Oh, well, he said, you shall go if you wish it. There was only a very small group of people collected to see the second envoy leave for Berlin. The hour and place of starting had been kept secret, on purpose, to avoid a crowd, and beyond three or four from the English college, with half a dozen private friends of the cardinal, a few servants, and perhaps a dozen passers-by, who had collected below in curiosity at seeing a racing velour attached to one of the disused flying stages on the hill behind the Vatican. No one else, in the crowds that swarmed now in the streets and squares of Rome, was even certain that an envoy was going, still less of his identity. Monsignor found himself, ten minutes before the start, standing alone on the alighting stage, while the cardinal still talked below. As he stood there, now looking out over the city, where beneath the still luminous sky the lights were already beginning to kindle, and where in one or two of the larger squares he could make out the great crowds moving to and fro, now staring at the long and polished sides of the racing boat that swayed light as a flower with the buoyancy of the inrushing gas. As he saw all these things with his outward eyes, he was trying to understand something of the new impulses and thoughts that surged through him. He could have given little or no account of the reasons why he was here, of his hopes or fears or expectations. He was as one who watches on a sheet shadow figures whirl past confusedly, catching a glimpse here of a face or body, now of a fragmentary movement, that appeared to have some meaning, yet grasping nothing of the intention or plan of the whole. Or, even better, he was as one caught in a mill-race, tossed along and battered, yet feeling nothing acutely, curious indeed as to what the end would be, and why it had had a beginning, yet fundamentally unconcerned. The thing was so, there was no more to be said. He knew that it was necessary that he should be here, about to start for almost certain death, as that his soul should be inhabiting his body. But even all these recent happenings had not as yet illuminated him in the slightest as to the real character of the world that he found so bewildering. He felt, vaguely, that he ought to have by now all the pieces of the puzzle, but he was still as far as ever from being able to fit them into a coherent whole. He just perceived this, and no more, that the extraordinary tranquillity of these Catholics in the presence of death was a real contribution to the problem as much as the dull earthliness of the socialist colony in America. It was not merely Dom Adrian in particular, who had been willing to die without perturbation or protest. His judges and accusers seemed just as ready when their turn came. And he, he who had cried out at Christian brutality, who had judged the world's system by his own, and found it wanting, he feared death although, so far, his fear had not deterred him from facing it. He took his place in the narrow cabin in the same mood, following the cardinal in after the last goodbyes had been said. It was a tiny place, fitted with a single padded seat on either side, covered with linen and provided with pillows. A narrow table ran up the center, and strong narrow windows looked directly from the sides of the boat. A stern platform, railed in and provided with sliding glass shutters, gave room to take a few steps of exercise, but the front of the boat was entirely occupied with the driver's arrangements. It was a comparatively new type of boat, he learned from someone with whom he had talked just now, used solely for racing purposes, 
and its speed was such that they would find themselves in Berlin before morning. The stern door was swung to by one who leaned from the stage. Still through the glass, the cardinal smiled out at his friends and waved his hand. Then a bell struck. A vibration ran through the boat. The stage outside lined with faces suddenly swayed and then fell into space. The cardinal laid his hand on the priest's knee. Now let us have a talk he said. The air that breathed down from the Alps was beginning to cloud the windows of the cabin before they had finished talking. The man who had lost his memory, under the tremendous stress of an emotion of which he was hardly directly conscious at all, the emotion generated by the knowledge that every whistling mile that fled past brought him nearer and almost certain death, had experienced a kind of sudden collapse of his defences such as he had never contemplated. He had told everything straight out to this quiet, fatherly man, his terrors, his shrinking from the unfamiliar atmosphere of thought to which he had awakened, it seemed, a few months before, his sense that Christianity had lost its spirit, and, above all, the strange absence of any definite religious emotion in himself. He found this difficult to put into words. He had hardly realized it even to himself. The cardinal put one question. And yet you are facing death, on the understanding that it is all true. I suppose so. Very well, then. That is faith. You need say no more. You have been to confession? This afternoon. The old man was silent for a moment. As to the unreality, the feeling that the church is heartless, I think that is natural. You had a violent mental shock in your illness. That means that your emotions are very sensitive, almost to the point of morbidness. Well, the heart of the church is very deep, and you have not found it yet. That does not greatly matter. You must keep your will fixed. That is all that God asks. I think it is true that the church is hard, in a certain sense, or shall we call it in a divine strength? It is largely a matter of words. She has had that strength always. Once it nerved her to suffer, now it nerves her to rule. But I think you would find that she could suffer again. Your eminence, cried the priest lamentably, I am beginning to see that, yourself, Prince Adeone. The cardinal lifted his hand. Of myself we need not speak. I am an old man, and I do not expect to suffer. Prince Oteone was another matter. He was a young man, full of life, and he knew to what he was going. Well, does not his case impress you? He went quite cheerfully, you know. The priest was silent. What are you thinking of, my son? The priest shivered a little. Tell me, said the cardinal again. It is the Holy Father, burst out the other impulsively. He was terrible, so unconcerned, so careless as to who lived or died. He looked up in an agony, and saw a look almost of amusement in the old man's eyes, fixed on him. Yes, do not be afraid, murmured the old man. You think he was unconcerned? Well, ought he not to be? Is not that what we should expect of the Vicar of Christ? Christ wept. 
Yes, yes, and his vicar too has wept. I have seen it. But Christ went to death without tears. But, but this man is not going, cried the priest. He is sending others. If he went himself... He stopped suddenly, not at a sound, but at a kind of mental vibration from the other. Up here in these heights, under the pressure of these thoughts, every nerve and fibre seemed to stretch to an amazing pitch of sensitiveness. It seemed to him as if he had never before lived at such a pitch. But the other said nothing. Once his lips opened, but they closed again. The priest said nothing. He waited. I think no one would expect the Holy Father to go himself under such circumstances, said the Cardinal gently and blandly. Do you not think that it might be harder for him to remain? Monsignor felt a wave of disappointment. He had expected a revelation of some kind, or a vivid sentence that would make all plain. The old man leaned forward again, smiling. Do not be impatient and critical, he said. It is enough that you and I are going. That should occupy us. Come, let us look through these papers again. It was an hour later that they swept down into the French plains. The glass cleared again as they reached the warmer levels, and Monsignor became conscious of an overpowering weariness. He yawned uncontrollably once or twice. His companion laughed. Lie down a little, Monsignor. You have had a hard day of it. I must have some sleep, too. We must be as fresh as we can for our interview. Monsignor said nothing. He stepped across to the other couch and slipped off his shoes, took off his cincture, and lay down without a word. Almost before he had finished wondering at the marvelous steadiness of this flying arrow of a ship, he had sunk down into complete unconsciousness. He awoke with a start, coming up, as is common after the deep sleep of exhaustion, into a state in which, although the senses are awake, the intellect is still in a kind of paralysis of slumber. He threw his feet off the couch and sat up, staring about him. The first thing which he noticed was that the cabin was full of a pale morning light, cold and cheerless, although the shaded lights still burned in the roof. Then he saw that the cardinal was sitting at the farther end of the opposite couch, looking intently out, that one of the glass shutters was slid back, and that a cold, foggy air was visibly pouring in past the old man's head. Then he saw the head of the driver through the glass panes in the door. His hand rested on the grip of some apparatus connected with the steering, he believed. But beyond this there was nothing to be seen through the windows opposite, of which the curtains had been drawn back. He saw nothing but white, driving mist. He tore back the curtains behind him, and there also was the mist. It was plain that they were not at rest at any stage, and yet the slight humming vibration of which he had been conscious before he fell asleep, and even during one or two moments of semi-wakefulness during the night, this had ceased. The car hung here like a floating balloon, motionless, purposeless, far up out of sight of land, and an absolute silence hung round it. He moved a little as these things began to arrange themselves in his mind, and at the movement the cardinal turned round. He looked old and worn in this chilly light, and his unshaven chin sparkled like frost. But he spoke in his ordinary voice without any sign of discomposure. 
So you are awake, Monsignor? I thought I would let you have your sleep out. What has happened? Where are we? We arrived half an hour ago. They signaled to us to remain where we were until they came up. We have arrived. Certainly. We passed the first Berlin signaling light nearly three-quarters of an hour ago. We slowed down after that, of course. The priest turned his head suddenly and made a movement with it downwards. The cardinal leaned forward again and peered through the open shutter. I think they are coming up at last, he said, drawing his head back. Hush, listen, Monsignor. The priest listened with all his might. At first he heard nothing except the faint whistle of the wind somewhere in the roof. Then he heard three or four metallic noises, as if from the depths of a bottomless pit, faint and minute. And then, quite distinctly, three strokes of a bell. The cardinal nodded. They are starting, he said. They have kept us long enough. He slipped along the seat to where his scarlet cincture and cap lay and began to put these on. Monsignor sprang across and lifted down the great Roman cloak from its peg. You had better get ready yourself, said the cardinal. They will be here in a moment. As the priest slipped on his second shoe, a sound suddenly stopped him dead for an instant. It was the sound of voices talking somewhere beneath in the fog. Then he finished and stood up, just as there slid cautiously upwards, like a whale coming up to breathe, past the window by which the cardinal was now standing, cloaked and hatted, first a shining roof, then a row of little ventilators, and finally a line of windows against which a dozen faces were pressed. He saw them begin to stir as the scarlet of the cardinal met their eyes. "'We can sit down again,' said the old man, smiling. "'The rest is a matter for the engineers.' It seemed strange afterwards to the priest how little real or active terror he felt. He was conscious of a certain sickly sensation and of a sourish taste on his lips as he licked them from time to time, but scarcely more than this except perhaps of a sudden shivering spasm that shook him once or twice as the fog-laden breeze poured in upon him. He sat there watching through the windows in a kind of impassivity, as much as he could see of the method by which the racing boat was attached by long rigid rods to the steady floating raft that had risen from beneath. He was even interested to observe that these rigid rods were of telescopic design and were elongated from their own interiors. One of them pushed forward once to within a foot of the windows. Then the tapering end seemed to fall apart into two hooked ends, singularly like a lean finger and thumb with roughened surfaces. This, in its turn, rose out of sight, and he heard it slide along the roof overhead, till it caught some projection and there clenched. So the process went on, slowly and deliberately. The driver still remained at his post answering once or twice questions put to him from some invisible person outside. The cardinal still sat, motionless and silent on the opposite seat. Then, after perhaps ten minutes' delay, a sensation of descending became perceptible. His fear, such as it was, took a new form, as presently, through the thinning fog, he became aware that the earth was approaching. The first clear indication of this was the sound of a clock striking. He counted the strokes carefully, and immediately forgot what it was that he had counted. Then, as he watched with straining eyes for buildings or towers to make their appearance, 
the movement stopped. There was a faint jarring sensation, then the sound of trampling feet, then a heavy shock. He had forgotten that stages were used. The cardinal stood up. Come, Monsignor, he said, and gave his hand to him. So the two stood a moment longer. Then the footsteps sounded on the boat. A shadow fell across the glass of the stern door. The door opened, letting in a rush of foggy air, and two men in uniform came swiftly inside. "'Your name and your business, gentlemen,' said the foremost shortly in excellent English. "'I am come on behalf of the Holy Father,' said the Cardinal steadily. "'My name is Cardinal Bellairs. This is my secretary, Monsignor Masterman. He is not an envoy.' "'Exactly,' said the man. "'That is all in order.' You were seen by our guard boats. Will you step this way? A bridge had been thrown across from the raft to the racing boat, and the latter was now attached to an immense stage, whose sides ran down into the fog. The stage platform was crowded with men, some in official uniform, some in blouses. But a way was kept clear for the visitors, and they passed across without any actual show of hostility or resentment. Monsignor noticed but one detail that no salutation of any kind was given, and as they took their seats in the lift, with the two officials close beside them, he heard guttural conversation break out, and, he thought, one loud laugh. The doors were latched, and the lift dropped. The speed was so great that it would have been impossible to see anything of the town into which they descended, even had the fog been absent. As it was, Monsignor saw nothing except the sudden darkening of the air round them. Then, as the speed slackened, he saw the side of some great building not twenty yards away. Then the lift stopped, and the doors were opened. A group of men stood there, with something of an expectant air in their stolid faces. All these were in uniform of some description. One stood a little in advance of the rest, and held a paper in his hand. Cardinal Bellairs he said, also in English, and Monsignor Masterman? The Cardinal bowed. We had information from Rome last night. I understand you have a communication from the powers? From the Holy Father, whom the European powers have appointed to represent them. It is the same thing, said the man brusquely. The council are waiting to receive you. Kindly follow me. The official who had brought them down stepped forward. I understand, sir, that this gentleman, he indicated the priest, is not an envoy. Is that so? asked the other. It is. Very good. I only have authority to introduce the envoy. Monsignor Masterman will be good enough to follow the other gentleman. Your Eminence, will you come with me? On looking back afterwards on the whole experience, that which stood out as most shocking in it all to the priest's mind was the abominable speed with which the tragedy was accomplished. It was merciful, perhaps, that it was so, for even the half-hour or so which elapsed before the priest had any more news dragged itself to an intolerable length. He walked up and down the little furnished room, some kind of parlour, he understood, attached to a government building seized by the revolutionaries, guarded, he knew, by a couple of men in the passage, whose voices he occasionally heard, in a sort of dull agony, 
far more torturing than positive objective fear he tried to comfort himself by retelling to himself the story of the last few days reminding himself how after the first outburst when the police had been shot down by these new weapons of which he understood nothing and the palace had been taken and the city reduced to a state of defenceless terror the revolutionaries had sternly repressed the second attempt at massacre in a manner not unworthy of real civilization a great deal of the whole story was unintelligible to him he just knew the outlines first it was obvious that the revolution had been planned in all its details months before there had been soon after the emperor's conversion a great access of other converts accompanied by a great dispersal to other countries notably america of innumerable people of the lower classes who were known as socialists all this was looked upon by the authorities as natural and as actually reassuring there had been a few protests against the new proposals with regard to legislation but not enough to rouse any suspicion that violence would be attempted finally when the organized immigration was beginning and even the most pessimistic politicians were beginning to regard the situation as saved without the slightest warning the blow has been struck obviously by the directions of an international council whose very existence had not been suspected as to the details of the revolution itself he was even more vague for the understanding of it depended on an acquaintance with the internal arrangements of berlin by which a kind of interior citadel not outwardly fortified in any way yet held in its compass all those immense power stations by which in the present day every town was defended he did not know exactly what these power stations were beyond the fact that they were the lineal successors of the old gun forts and controlled an immense number of mines both within the city and without it as well as some kind of electric ray which was the modern substitute for cannon well it was this citadel including the emperor's palace that had been suddenly seized by the revolutionaries obviously by the aid of treachery and the thing was done it was impossible for the other powers or even for the german air navy itself to wipe the whole place out of existence since it was known that the emperor himself was in the hands of the rebels it was a bald story as he had heard it yet he reflected that great coups usually were extremely and unexpectedly simple finally there were the terms demanded terms which the powers were unanimous in rejecting since they included the formal disestablishment of the church throughout europe and the complete liberty of the press with guarantees that these should continue the alternative to the acceptance of these terms was the execution of the emperor in formal war declared upon europe a war which of course could have but one ending but which until that end came would mean under the new conditions of warfare an almost unimaginable destruction of life and property especially since as was known the socialists repudiated all the international laws of warfare the defiance was of course a ridiculous and a desperate one but it was the defiance of a savage child who held all modern resources in his hands and knew how to use them there was also a possible as some said a rising all over the civilized world should the movement meet with success so much in brief was what monsignor masterman knew so much indeed was now public property all the world over and it was not reassuring certainly he feared death for himself 
yet as he paced up and down he could honestly and sincerely tell himself that this was not foremost in his mind rather it was a sense of bewildered shock and horror that such things could have broken in upon that orderly disciplined world with which he had become familiar it was this horror that hung over him its impression deepened by the bleak april morning the nervous strain under which he suffered the brusque discourtesy of the men who had received him and the knowledge that scarcely thirty-six hours before an envoy who had come alone and peaceably had been done to death in this silent city and the horror also centred for him now as in a symbol of the old cardinal whom he was learning to love he framed as men do when the imagination is stimulated to the highest pitch a dozen possible events each seen by him mentally clear in a picture he constructed for himself the cardinal's return with news of a compromise with an announcement at least of delay he knew a few of the proposals that were to be made by sanction of the pope or he saw him coming back anxious and perturbed with nothing decided or he imagined himself being sent for in haste and there were other pictures more terrible and against these he strove with all his will telling himself that it was inconceivable that such things should be yet not one of his imaginings was as terrible as the event itself it came swift and sudden without the faintest sign or premonition as he turned in his endless pacings down at the farther end of the room his ears for the instant filled with the clatter of some cart outside the open barred windows a figure came swiftly into the room without the sound of a footstep to warn him behind he could make out two faces waiting it was the cardinal who stood there upright and serene as ever with a look in his eyes that silenced the priest he lifted his hand on which shone his great amethyst and at the motion scarcely knowing what he did the priest was on his knees benedictio dei onipotentis patris et filii et spiritus sancti descendat superte et maniat semper that was all not a word more and as the priest sprang up with a choking cry the slender figure was gone and the door shut and locked end of part three chapter two